Hello, I'm Joseph Malazzi, creator of Dark Matter, and you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to another 2,500 tonnes of awesome edition of Neil Before Pod. I'm your host Craig McKenzie and this episode is all about the 2013 Giant Robot on Giant Monster mashup Pacific Rim. Joining me for some Giant Robot on Giant Monster action is Kat. Hello. Hello. How goes it? Ah, it goes, it goes okay actually. Yeah. Sound confident when you're... <laughs> in my okayness, yeah, it's all right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's all it's all going pretty good. Um, yeah, I've been I've been kind of focusing on um, like a lot of fiction writing and stuff, but the universe has pulled me back into the film world, and so I'm just going along with what the universe is telling me. Um, and yeah, it's it's been it's been a good it's been a good week so far. Always listen to the universe. Crossing fingers, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's been a good week so far, and as we record, it's only Monday. So, oh no, see, I don't, I don't have weekends <laughs> because of my job. Yeah. Um. So, so when I say week, I mean the last seven days. Um. But I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> my week is based on the fact it's only Monday. All right. It's okay so far. Yeah. <laughs> as far as beginnings go, I'm still, I'm still kicking about. It's, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're here to talk about the. It's quite an old film now. That's not that old. The Pacific Rim, two thousand thirteen, is when it came out according to IMDb. So four yeah. years old. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I was looking at some um, old interviews with uh, Del Toro and Beecham, and I realized, you know, I looked at the publishing date. And it said, you know, like 2013, or some of them dated back to 2012. It's like, how how did this happen? It feels like yesterday, and yet, here we are. Yeah, we've had like 50 Marvel movies since then. <laughs> we truly have. <laughs> and we're on our fourth reboot of the DC Cinematic Universe as well. Something like that. Soon to be fifth, I don't know. I don't know how many reboots um. they've had. Lost track. Um, so yeah, it was a... Uh, a rarity in the cinema world. I mean, I know a lot of people compare it to um, to various things, but it is in its in itself an original universe, not adapted directly from anything else. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a rare rarity for a big budget blockbuster. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's four years old, but still, in case anyone listens to the first five minutes of the podcast, checking to see if what we think of it without spoiling it, and then decide whether they're going to watch it from that or not. Um, there, there must be one. Law of Average said one, <laughs> one person does that. So, um, what are your thoughts on the the film without spoilers? Yeah. So, I when I went to see this film, I went into it fully expecting to hate it, uh, just based on the trailer and stuff. I didn't think it looked particularly good. Um, in fact, I only really went to see it because a friend wanted to see it and I used to work at a cinema and I said okay you know I'll take you it's fine um and so it was it was an IMAX screening 
And I go in and within the first five minutes, I was sold. Um, the world building in the opening sequence is so strong, so solid that I knew that like from those first minutes that it wasn't going to be a run of the mill action movie. It, there was more to it right off the bat, like a vision of the setting that was so detailed that I could immediately believe it. And I mean, I think, yeah, still to this day, the first seven or so minutes of the film are by far my favorite thing about it. Um, in, in an, an incredible story that could have been a movie on its own. Um, and that's, that's one of my arguments perhaps in favor of the film, which I'll come back to later. Um, and I mean, yes, you know, as you said, it is, the, the, the influences are very clear. Um, you know, it's, it's very clearly a love letter to monster movies and the anime and manga and kaiju movies that have come out of Japan. Um, but it really has a lot of heart. Like, we can talk about monsters and robots all day, and we probably will. Uh, but when it comes down to it, Pacific Rim is a story about people. It's about the main character, Raleigh, who learns how to deal with the loss of his brother. Uh, it's about Mako, the Japanese girl who proves her worth. Um, it's about, like, the, the leadership and sacrifice and the importance that is the connection between people, the relationships between people. Um, like, the, I don't know, like this, this movie gives me so many feelings. Like I, I love it. And I love that it's original. As you said, you know, it's not based on anything, um, you know, like, like an existing IP of any kind. Uh, a dude came up with this idea, talked to Guillermo del Toro. They developed it together. And it's an entire, yeah, like, universe of its own with a lot of detail in the world building that we do get glimpses of it in the film, but it just goes so much deeper than anyone expects, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I absolutely loved it. I didn't go in expecting to hate it. I went in expecting to love it because, mm. you know, the 10-year-old the boy in me decides, sees a giant monster getting punched by a giant robot and i'm like i'm there i have to <laughs> and you know the trailer had the uh using a um using a ship as a baseball bat and all this yes stuff. and I was, like, <laughs> I was like yeah this, there's no way i won't enjoy this and uh, and i went to see it and i got a lot more out of it than than i expected um it's it's one of those things whenever del toro touches a project you know it can go from being kind of a mediocre fun idea to something that's a bit more than that um mm. I mean, arguably, the Hellboy films could have been kind of disposable fluff if it wasn't him. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, you know, there's more to them. And uh, Pan's Labyrinth is more of a visual journey than it is anything else. But even then, there's, you know, a little bit extra in there. But that's his from the ground up. Mm -hmm. So, um, there, yeah, there's so much in here. I keep going back to it. It's one of my favourite blockbusters of, I guess, the past 10 years. Uh, you know, whenever I want to watch something that I find a bit fun, uh, I go back to it and... Um, I like the characters, at least for the most part. There's a couple that are that irk me somewhat, but I'll come to I'll come on. It yeah, we'll come to it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's just cool. It looks great. It's very stylish, you know. And it's um, I think a testament to sort of Del Toro's talent is if you look at any of the clips from the second one that isn't out yet, mm -hmm. it's like that looks super mediocre. I yeah. mean, I've only seen about twenty seconds of it or something based on mm. what we've seen, but you know, it, it just looks. 
It looks like it'll probably be fine. It looks like what people expected the first movie to be. Yeah. Um, and that's what bothers me. When when the sequel becomes, you know, that generic idea that people have of the first one, and it's like, no, no, but watch the first one. It's really good, actually. Like, give it a chance instead of this. Um, but yeah, like we'll come we'll come to to our thoughts of that and. We'll come to the sequel in due course. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about the first one first. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really have anything further to say that isn't spoilery, so if you're you're all tapped out without spoiling, then we can just move on. Yeah, sure. Pilots, ready to connect. Pilots engaged in your operation. Ready to activate the Jaeger. Three, two, one. Okay, now we're free to talk about whatever we want, such as the freedom of the post-spoiler noise um so you mentioned world building and you know it does that it does that thing that almost every other science fiction film does these days you know where it starts off with a five minute prologue of here's how we got to this point and usually i find those really tedious although Mm -hmm. um apparently del toro approached some documentary filmmaker that he really liked um, okay. To to film those to do those first five minutes as if it was a documentary and there is a mm. a kind of found footagey documentary ish feel to it. Yes. Uh, as it goes through the kind of there was a monster attack and here's and then we decided to build giant robots and now we're here you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't mind the prologue. I mean, I'm not sure the, the prologue my favorite part of the film, but mm. because I just detest those. I mean, same. Perhaps yeah. perhaps I like it so much because. It's so different to those usual, like, well, let me tell you, you know, once upon a time, this and this happened, and so now we have giant robots. Um, you know, like, it could have been, it could have been like that, but because of that documentary feel, like, it just, it felt so real. It felt like, okay, like, I can believe that this is the version of the world that we're seeing right now. So, like, you know, with that prologue, like, it's already sucked you into its world and said, right, okay, so now Monsters vs. Robots is a thing that happens every day. It's normal for people to see and expect this. So it's normal for you too, as a viewer. And so you sit there and you're like, alright, yes, I guess I guess this is fine. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big premise to kind of give you in the first five minutes. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the thing that perhaps a lot of people who don't like Pacific Rim will say, Oh, but this is silly, you know, the giant robots. And it's like, all right, okay. Um, I mean, yes, but also, shush. (laughs) It's one of those things where, you know, let's just put these plasma cannons on top of a wall and we're fine. But, you know, then you wouldn't have giant robots. Yeah. I I often feel like the UN crisis meeting had a couple of, like, you know, uh, anime nerds sitting there who were like, right, guys, I'm going to suggest this. (laughs) Yeah, okay, but have we thought of this (laughs) this idea? Imagine this concept. Have we tried making (laughs) giant robots to fight them? And it's like, they'll never go for it. They'll never listen. It's like, that's a great idea. Actually, it is a great idea. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I have... So, because I really enjoyed that part of the film, um, and I enjoyed the bits that kind of gave us a glimpse into the war before we've come to the moments in Pacific Rim. Because Pacific Rim really is the end of a war uh, between humanity and these giant monsters. Like, this has been going on for, you know, like a good 15 years before Pacific Rim, like, the story comes into play. 
Um, and so I got really into, like, right around the time the film came out, uh, a few months later, uh, there was the novelization of the film, which I'm guessing was based on the original script rather than the film itself, uh, because there are some differences between the novelization and the movie. Um, and then there was also a couple of comic books, one that was uh, Pacific Rim Tales from the Year Zero, mm -hmm. which details um, the first kaiju attack and then how they came up with the Jaeger uh, program and how the Jaeger program works, like specifically about the drift. Um, and now th that's kind of what, what sold the whole thing to me. Because um, the idea of drift compatibility is something that the film doesn't necessarily go very deeply into, but it's by far my favorite thing to come out of Pacific Rim. Um, the idea that two people or more than two people could have a way of thinking that is so similar that um, their brains could effectively form a giant brain that is powerful enough to, like, handle the neural load from, like, a massive machine. Because um, that's cause that's what the drift is, but they don't really explain it in the film. It's just kind of like, oh, we're drift compatible. It's like, actually, that's a big deal. That's actually, like, kind of massive. Yeah, they, um, they simplify it with family members can do it just naturally. Mm. Um, and then they don't explain why Riley and Mako have compatibility, other than yeah. they just do... Um, yeah, exactly. Like, there's there's a moment where, um, like, Mako makes a list of other pilots that might be compatible with Raleigh. Um, and it's like, how how do you decide this? How do you decide who is yeah. compatible with this other person? Like, what's what what are the parameters here? Like, I want to know. Um, so in the comic book, Tale from Tale from Year Zero, um, Tales from Year Zero. Uh, we find out how the Jaeger program works and how drift compatibility is decided, um, specifically based on the scientists who first come up with it, because one of them gets injured because he tries to pilot the machine by himself. Um, and then it's like, oh, okay, so like one person can't do it. So uh, I think it's uh, him and his wife who um, first decide to like try and pilot. Uh, Jaeger together mm -hmm. and because they share like a deep emotional bond and because they've spent a lot of time together like d drift compatibility is how your minds work like in a train of thought will you have the same thought it's the are you thinking what I'm thinking but like all the time Right. Um, that's why family members are very good at it because like if you're like if you're with your brother like me and my sister like we have spent most of our lives together we think in a very similar way so yes you know like we would be drift compatible but that's not to say that you wouldn't be drift compatible with a friend or like someone in the case of Raleigh someone you've just met but like they think in very much the same way as you. And that is proven by like, at some point they have like a little sparring like match in the yeah. film. And it's like, oh, okay. So like they fight the same way. They anticipate each other's movements because they know what the other person would think of doing because that's what they would do. Yeah. And so hence drift compatibility. But so it's, mm. it's explained visually, I suppose, but it's, it's such a great concept. It's by far, I think, like the best thing to come out of it. Like there's just so many 
applications. It's breathed new life into like fandom culture at large. Um, you know, the idea, you know, if, if Mary and Pippin from Lord of the Rings piloted a Jaeger, <laughs> you know, like they would be drift compatible and their <laughs> Jaeger would probably be called Treebeard, you know, like things like that. Um, there was, there was a, a moment on the internet where everybody was talking about which characters from other fictional mediums, um, would be drift compatible and what their Jaegers would be called. And it's, it was a, it was a glorious time on the internet. I have to say. <laughs> I must have missed that. Um, mm. I didn't seem to, uh, I didn't seem to get into too much fandom chat about this film, which is a shame. Oh, I because, see. Yeah. I remember just coming across how, you know, yeah, it's good, but it's not like amazing uh, that, that people would be <laughs> saying. And then I don't know, they would go and see whatever other generic thing was out at the same time. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's weird because it's, you know, it's it's a clever film kind of masquerading as a silly film, and you know, there's a lot of silly things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the the giant robot concept itself is really <laughs> silly because it's the it's probably the least effective thing you could think of to combat yeah. combat this threat, you know, the, or the fact that they don't have a, a legion of them just standing outside the rift, uh, just to make sure, you know. So um, that, that would make sense. The the monsters come out of the rift. You need to leave them standing next to it they don't seem to no yeah <laughs> um or maybe they did at one point and that just didn't work i don't know um because there's, there's a lot of years where stuff happens because you see the that attack where where Riley's brother dies mm-hmm. um and then after that it skips five years and everything's went to hell exactly and even before that you have like a lot of time between the first attack and whenever Raleigh's brother died, like all of that time, the entire war is basically off camera and we don't really learn the specifics. You know, I, I always wondered, um, like the technician, uh, on the brig, you know, he's always like, Oh, Kaiju signature is rising and it's mm-hmm. a level blah, blah. And, uh, this is its code name and things like that. And it's like, Hey, how do you know it's shape? How do you know? Like, like all of these things, like we never really understand how any of that works. Yeah. Um, uh, again, you know, like it, some of the extended universe stuff like does tell you a little bit, but you know, obviously all of that is like sci-fi technology that doesn't exist. So, yeah. you know, it's all, it's all a bit up in the air. Anything, anything can work at this yeah. point. Choi, who's looks like he's, uh, just being plucked out of the Doctor Who convention that he was really enjoying. Yes, oh, well, well his, he his, looks really great in the suspenders. <laughs> with his living, living Doctor outfit. just Pretty much, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I quite liked his character, although I wouldn't have... I know, I couldn't tell you a single thing about him, other than he likes to go after women and dangerous Yeah, situations. he's a womanizer. Yeah, yeah, he's a womanizer, and uh, he's, he's a real that, nerd about, about yeah, engines. <laughs> and stuff yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah yeah that's kind of it yeah um i was reading uh a re- some some old reviews and stuff of the film and somebody said that like the characters in the film they all seem to be born out of stereotypes but they are then humanized beyond stereotypes yeah and i really like that and it's true i think yeah um, i mean I actually find Raleigh to be the least interesting character. And mm. I would almost argue against him being the main character. I think Mako is. Yeah, I think so. Everything's about her, mm-hmm. you know, her emotional journey. His is kind of done. 
you know, he's accepted the fact that his brother is dead and he's just kind of mm. getting on with it. But um, mm. I think he has he has a journey to like into accepting other people back in his life because his knee jerk reaction to losing his brother and effectively a size of him, a, a side of him that, you know, is irreplaceable. Um, was to wall himself off, you know, go work lonely jobs where he doesn't talk to other people. Um, and and this entire story, like, basically brings him back into having to deal with other people, having to accept other people in his life and in his heart and in his brain, you know, letting somebody else in where he's been closed off for so long. So, so for him, you know, he, I suppose, you know, it is a simpler kind of less complex journey, but it is yeah. in itself, it's, it's valid, you know, like some people do go through this, like in, in periods of their life where, you know, we shut people off and then something will happen and we, we are brought back into, you know, like socializing and, and caring for others where we've, you know, tried not to and things like that. So, you know, like, I, I do like Rally, but you are right. I think Mako is the main character here. I wonder if I would have liked Rally better had he been played by someone a bit more charismatic than Charlie Hunnam. Ooh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, mm. I was reading that, like, people like Henry Cavill were considered, and I think he might have been better. Oh, I don't know. I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not convinced by Henry Cavill as an actor yet. Um, Man from Uncle is like yeah. the, the one that shows that he has some charisma. Yes, to him. it's the only. Yes, it's the only film of his I've seen that I've gone. Oh, okay, you're kind of all right. Yeah. And maybe this <laughs> uh, could have I been. I really the film don't for like him in all the Superman. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't know really. It's a, it's a good it's a good hypothesis. Yeah, um, but I don't know. But I do really like mm-hmm. the bit near the beginning when uh, Pentecost comes to get him. And he mm. goes. He tries to go down this emotional monologue, and and Pentecost yeah. just tells him to shut up. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't have time for your emotional crap. The world's coming to an end. Get back in. Get back in the giant robot, or leave me alone. <laughs> the voice of reason, truly, Sacre <laughs> Pentecost. <laughs> yeah, he just doesn't take any crap from anyone. No, is, not at all. He don't have time for this. <laughs> which is like, very yeah, it's standard true. Idris Elba type character, really, but extremely. You know what I really enjoy about Stacker Pentecost's character? I just love that he has Idris Elba's East London accent. Yeah. Like, I love it. I love it. He just Why sounds not? like he's from Hackney. Because yeah. he is. Because he, he is from Hackney. From. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, because he says things like, you know, he's the last man standing. You know, yeah. like, no G's, even though he's a military man. You know, he doesn't... <laughs> like, it's just it's it's just such an interesting... Like, where did you come from? <laughs> um, you know, and why? Like, we learn we learn a little bit, actually, in um, uh, Tales from Year Zero, the comic book, that his sister uh, used to uh, fight for... She was in the U.S. Air Force, or in the okay. British Air Force, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, the British Air Force. And... Um, like they sent uh, fighter jets to support the attack in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, and she died in that first Jew attack in San Francisco. And so he he carries that like you know like this war is personal to him type of thing, uh, 
which, you know, we don't really get to see in the film, and I suppose it's not necessary. He's he's just like a fixture. Um, you know, we need we need we need a leader, so he is it. Um, but he does he does have like a more kind of personal vendetta with the kaijus as well. Yeah. Well, his key thing is uh, getting over his overprotectiveness, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. It's it's about letting Mako out go outside in effect because yeah. I guess he's afraid that he'll lose her. Um, to say nothing about the son that he apparently has in the sequel. I know. I, I keep I keep wondering about this. Like, okay, in the context of the first film, like, where's John Boyega here? Yeah. Like, did he, like, at what point... Well, it could be his what, nephew. We don't know, I suppose. Oh, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. No, but I think the trailer does insinuate... I think they say something about his dad and then they show oh, right, Stacker. Yeah. So it's like, so okay, so if you are his son, like... When were you born? Did you know Mako? Like all of this, like what is happening? Um, I need, I need answers. I don't Why know that we're going to get them from the second film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. How old was he when Pacific Rim <laughs> was taking place? You know. Yeah. Million million dollar questions here. Um, yeah. I I'm not sure how much, how many like answers we'll get. To be honest, but. I have no idea. Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's, it's a difficult one, but for the context of this film, I mean, the thing is, what they've, well, what they do in a film we haven't seen yet is immaterial. In the context of mm. this one, his parental relationship is with Mako, and it's all about being less overprotective of her, um, mm. letting her realize her full potential, and just just generally trying to keep everyone from beating the crap out of each other. I suppose that's yeah. another thing. He's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of tensions on that base yeah. for sure. I do for like. Sure. Um, I do like his attitudes to things as well. It's kind of, where'd you get a nuke? It's like, yeah, the Russians, they gave it to us. You know, I look mm. the other way. And he looks the other way when Hannibal Chow is, um, is taking apart Jaeger, uh, kaiju remains mm-hmm. to sell in the black market because it gives him access to stuff he needs as well. So it's, mm. you know, and his only justification is last days of war. Like, yeah. That's it. It's like, I don't care. It's either this or the world ends. I'm I'm happy with compromising a, a little bit, and it's yeah. a kind of very real and very uh, yeah real. That's the only word I can think of. It's a very real attitude to to dealing yeah. with a problem like that. It's like protocol. Absolutely. Don't need mm-hmm. that. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Like, what's what's the what's the takeaway here? Like, if if we can, you know, get get these people to allow these people to take what they want and do what they want with it, like. If it helps me, then fine. Um, and yeah, I do like that. And if he successfully puts him out of business anyway, so... That's true. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wins. It's a long game he's playing. That, that's yeah. what he's his superiors. Mm. Yeah, he's a really good character. Just um, He has one of the best speeches since Independence Day as well. <laughs> Today was... we are cancelling the apocalypse. <laughs> Which was unfortunately annoying before the film came out because it was in all the trailers. In all the trailers, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's like no, yeah. you don't, 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 eh? Don't <laughs> give us the speech up front. Like we want to hear that right away. Yeah. We want to hear that in the moment. But mm-hmm. and they give us most of it as well in the trailer. I think it's true. I think they like because it is truly like the one kind of massively like inspiring moment. The rest of yeah. it is just like like there's build up and there's a lot of like quiet emotional scenes and there's a lot of you know the, the, it it's not very trailer worthy no. a lot of it 
Um, and so, you know, like I get from, from their point of view, you know, like we want the coolest moment and it, that is, you know, pretty much one of the coolest moments. Um, so, you know, fair that they, you know, made it a centerpiece of the trailer, but also, yeah, it does, it does give away the coolest moment. So, yeah. 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 Although I think there's a lot of cool moments, but unfortunately it gives you, to put it in a trailer would give away a lot of the kind of visual awesomeness and i suppose you do yeah. see a lot of it although I, I barely remembered the trailer when i went in it was kind of something mm-hmm. i'd seen once but um yeah. you know while i'm sitting in the cinema trying to ignore trailers i couldn't help but hear the speech so, yeah you know that's it but um there's there's a lot of cool moments in here i mean mm-hmm. very early on i love that like i love that whole opening sequence where you see rally and uh, is it yancey yancey yeah, yeah the brother yeah going into action i think that's like mm-hmm. It just sets up the routine, which I, I mean, I always like these kind of seeing how these everyday things come together. So it's like, yeah, exactly. You know, like for them, it's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're suiting up. You know, we'll get into the cockpit. We'll have a bit of banter. You know, we've done this a few times. We're not that mm-hmm. worried about it. And you just know that because it's in the film, it's going to go to, you know, go, yeah. it's going to go, it's going to go badly wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't start the film off with it. Yeah, that was fine. That was just a routine mission. Back we go. You know, because. It would, mm. Something has to happen, and then it just it just goes horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, and then you've that really cool shot on the the beach, you know, with the with the snow and stuff. That's just awesome. yeah. Like there's this, that's one of my favorite, like really great moments of the film. Like because th- there's a grandpa and a kid on the beach with a metal detector, and like in comes this giant metal machine from <laughs> yeah. this from the ocean. And it's it's this idea, like, there's a lot of scenes in the film that play with the notion of tiny and giant things and, you know, kind of the, the, the in a comedic sort of way sometimes, um, when, when one of the, I think, Gypsy Danger crashes into a building and, like, knocks over uh, a chair that hits a metal pendulum and then, like, the little metal balls on a desk, like, start... Yeah, the Newton's Cradle. So, yeah. so yeah, thank you. It's like that. That's like that's awesome. Um, or um, when uh, like it skids over, like they're at the harbor and Gypsy Danger skids and uh, knocks over like a bollard and and a, and a pigeon flies away. Yeah. Um, you know, just like these these little games of like you know tiny things being affected by giant things in really subtle ways, like. Those are cool moments. Um, and also, I I really like that one line of Chuck Hansen when he goes, I'm going to drop you like a sack of kaiju sh**. And just puts his hat on. Like, yeah. it's just, it's awesome. It's, it's such a great line. Um, he is my least favorite character, though. Man, like, I wish, I wish we got a little bit more... Of him, because what we learn about his upbringing and his family, and how they lost his, like they lost the mother, and so why it's just like the father and son, and that tension between them that just like won't go away. Um, I, I think that if we got to know him a little more as a character, like a, a little more as a person, um, he'd be more likable. But he is definitely painted as the antagonist for a lot of it. Yeah, and until he isn't, it's never mm. really resolved. It just stops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the he was maybe cut down on because after they cast him, they realised how terrible his accent was. 
No. Why? Was it that bad? I can't tell. I'm Greek. <laughs> I, I, I thought, yeah, I thought it was. Okay. Okay. It's so very, what, what's he yeah. supposed to be? Is he supposed to be Australian? Or? He's supposed to be Australian, yeah. Right. But the, the actor is English. Yeah. He, he was in EastEnders, believe it or not. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I only know him from Warcraft, but um, I've never I've never seen him in EastEnders, but I was told on good authority oh, okay. he was in EastEnders, and I was like, all right, okay, why I is mean, he here? <laughs> a lot of people have been in EastEnders. I just yeah. know that he's a super nerd, and you know, like, just really liked. I think he gave up another project to be in Pacific Rim. Hmm. Um, because he really, he really, really wanted to be in it. Um, and I don't know, like, I kind of, I, I really respect him. Accents or no? I mean, I can't really, I have to, like, admit, um, to, like, accents being a very weird thing for me. Like, I don't really understand, um, the subtle differences, and especially, like, what makes a, an accent good or not good. Not really sure. Um, I, I kind of felt that, you know, on that note, that uh, Charlie Hunnam's accent was terrible because I could never tell where he was from. Like, not just even a little bit. speaking like he normally speaks, I think. Which is, is that... Very, yeah. Is that his normal accent? Because, like, a lot of it sounds, so. like, vaguely, vaguely American, but then yeah. not. So it's like, what are you even? Like, where are you from? I was impressed I can't the actor tell. playing his brother looks a lot like him, though. That's true, yes. Yeah, I don't know who the yeah, actor really was. Um, mm. Let's find out. Uh, it maybe is his brother. <laughs> we'll just get you in for a scene or two. Yeah, like I was just watching the beginning of the film earlier and they really, really look alike. Yeah. Um, and it kind of seems like, oh, this is a film we're going to be seeing. This is, you know, these two fighting monsters. Yeah, uh, and then he, he dies. Yeah, oh, yeah. he's... Where's he from? No, it's not his brother. No, oh, he's Canadian. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Just looks a bit like him. Or certainly made up to look a bit like him. Okay, but what's interesting ah, he's in is that... He's After Earth you... as well, poor guy. Oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, what's interesting is that if you type if you type in Yancey Beckett uh, to Google, there's another actor who plays him in Pacific Rim Uprising. Oh, God. So why did they recast? What is... What is going on, sequel? I am concerned. I'm very concerned. I'm so concerned. Craig, I'm not... I'm not uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know. I'll see it. I think it, I think it worse that it'll be kind of fun. Of course I'll see it. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, for Boyega, really, because I really like him. Um, and I'm sure that he's going to do a great job in it. Now, the story and what is what they are going to do with a lot of, you know, like the elements of the original film that I really enjoy, you know, are they going to expand on them? Are they just going to like ignore a lot of stuff and just build this new thing out of nothing? Like, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. I wonder what caused the change in um, direction for the sequel as well. Cause at one point it was like, it's done well in China so that's yeah. great. So that gets us a sequel, and then it's mm. Del Toro's going to make it, and it was mm. it was almost this: we're going to make this, so you can either make it or we will. And he was yeah. like, "Fine, I'll make it." And then there was chat about an animated series that was going to tie mm-hmm. into it, and comics, yeah. and and this whole kind of interconnected universe that probably wouldn't be yeah. that interconnected. It was, you know, the the advertising for these things is always more impressive than the end result, with the exception of the MCU, but the. 
most of the time it's like, oh yeah, they've mentioned this one thing in this comic that does nothing, you know, that happened in this film, or or they'll make an oblique reference to something that happened in a comic in the in dialogue in the film, and then that'll be it. Yeah. yeah so I think it was um, so Travis Beecham who wrote the the original concept for Pacific Rim. He he's the one who's like responsible for most of this story, uh, and for most of the character building and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then he and Del Toro like developed, you know, the the full kind of mythology of the story, and then you know, obviously Del Toro directed it. Um, so he was working on a sequel script uh, along with the comic book, and uh, I mean the animated series concept and then things were just stalled for a very long time and uh Beecham wanted to do like different projects he wanted to make his own stuff and so at some point because of how long this was taking he was like all right like you guys can take this and do whatever I guess you know like I made my movie my movie is the first one so like anything else that you make like it's fine. Um, and then, cause I remember, cause I was waiting for a sequel so badly. I really just, I just wanted it. Um, and I remember when Del Toro pulled back cause, cause they were just, they were just like messing them about really like, yeah, yeah it's greenlit or oh, no, wait, there's no money. Or, you know, like, mm, we're not sure if we want it right now. Like, is this the right time? And so at some point Del Toro was like, all right, like you guys, I have my own stuff to make. So bye. <laughs> um, which is which is you know fair enough, and that's the the cruel truth of like the movie world as a business. The fact that a lot of it is up to like the head honchos who are you know bankrolling the thing, yeah. and if if the bank doesn't come in in time, you know like some people are busy or they don't want to wait around for studio execs to decide. Yeah, sure, you can make your movie now. Like, yeah. actually, you know, like, I have better things to do. And, you know, case in point, he went, did his own thing, won himself an Oscar or two. Yeah. So, yeah. eh, um, you know, he's doing okay. Um, yeah, it's it's disappointing that things have turned out this way. I was really hoping that at least Beecham would remain um, tethered to the project because it is his baby. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, his story from the get-go. He did get to do, like, the the two comic books, and uh, the novelization was given to somebody else to do, but it was based on his script. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, the, the essentials of what makes this world what it is, you know, they are out there if people want to look into them. And I, I recommend the comic books wholeheartedly. They're a lot of fun. Um, and if you like the world of Pacific Rim, like, they'll give you a lot of insight as well, which is really cool. Yeah, well, maybe check them out. Although it's when the mm. sequel con- contradicts everything that we've seen and then oh, it becomes I the know. new normal. Yeah. Do you know one detail from the novelization of the film, which I am curious as to why they didn't go with it. Um, so Newt and Herman, the two scientists, um, they are both German. Hence the names. Yes, but then Newt has an American accent and yeah. uh, Herman has a British accent, and they just kind of like roll with that. Yeah. Um, the film explains away Newt's accent, uh, not the film, sorry, the book, uh, by saying that he went to MIT as like a kid, and he's been living in America for some time, and so 
you know, he's his accent sounds like this, which, uh, sure, I guess, I suppose. Um, but then for Herman, like, nothing. He's really supposed to have a German accent. He's, you know, been in Germany until very shortly before the film story begins. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, it's, it's just, like, some details like that where I'm like, hmm. Or, you know, the fact that Herman is married and has, like, a wife somewhere. Um, you know, it's just like he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy, like in the film, you know, film Herman doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who, like, desires human company. <laughs> yeah, the, the film version very much lives in his own head and kind of despises speaking to other people. Exactly. And yeah. so, you know, like, the detail that he is married and his wife is, you know, worried about him and, you know, she always calls the base and, like, and I'm like, oh, wow, really? <laughs> This guy? <laughs> the guy who hates, like, human contact? Like, I'm surprised, actually. Uh, impressed, really. Well, it's in the film he has that kind of mini-arc where he does learn to... To be friends? someone else in his head. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> like, literally, unfortunately... Well, un- probably unfortunately for him, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> he goes from this, you know, I don't care. I'm just going to sit here and do sums. You... you worry about fighting the monsters i'll do the sums and then later on he's being an active participant and finding out more well that's only after he thinks that he's wrong Mm. yeah so i suppose there's a kind of a an element of pride at play because he's never been wrong before maybe oh 100 percent. (laughs) yes yeah i think so but i i do i do like him more for you know coming out of his shell and like accepting that newt might be right and you know deciding to help him actually being friends like that's it's a nice moment in the film yeah and i like to i like to new i think they could have done a bit more with his drifting with the kaiju thing because it kind of only exists so he can go into hong kong and uh and then meet hannibal chow and then go on to um figure out how to get through the the rift but there's kind of a lot more that could have been done with that i mean what does that do to your mental state being Mind melding mm-hmm. with a with a giant beast. Yeah, um, and Del Toro himself said that for the sequel, he was he would consider him to be the villain. Mm. You know, or was it, but whenever he talked about what are your ideas for the sequels, and he's like, I've got millions of them, but he would just yeah. rattle off a few. And then, <laughs> um, it's like I don't know, I'll make one of these, and then, <laughs> and then he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I wonder which way they're taking it because uh, Newt is Newt and Herman are both in the sequel. Um, so I wonder if we might see some of those effects of the mind melding and, and what that might have done to both of them. Um, if, if anything has actually happened to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Cause it's a really cool idea and you, you know, if you freeze frame the, the mind meld moment, you see some really cool imagery there, um, mm. from, from his backstory a bit to, you know, the an insight into the the other world. I mean, it's just flashes of images, but it's it's clearly there to, you know, when people buy the Blu-ray, they can sit there and freeze frame it and watch Mm. it frame by frame and see stuff. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that anything is built with that in mind. Um, I, I, I hesitate to say, oh yeah, sure. You know, like those, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like while you watch the film, like you notice these things and instantly you, you gain a sense of who this guy is or what has happened to him. 
um, like that bullying scene in one of the flashbacks, yeah. um, or Newt getting his tattoo, um, you know, just like bits and bobs here and there. I don't, I don't, I don't know that you know they they made it for the for the nerds to to screen cap later. <laughs> well, I mean, thinking Del Toro is a detail oriented guy, I would mm. think that he would have wanted at least we're going to have a bit of a narrative to these quick flashes, so they're not not just like. Random imagery, uh, mm. random imagery from this guy's life. So it's kind of if you if you do freeze frame it, it's actually quite interesting because you just you get to see little bits. I mean, it goes by in the blink of an eye. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, it know, is so quite fast. Yeah, so you kind of can't pick up anything from it really, yeah. unless you're really absurdly paying attention at that point. But um, but yeah, I did the uh, the freeze frame, you know, frame by frame, okay. <laughs> just to watch, just to watch it and. Uh, you get to see a bit of uh, Herman's past as well, and the mm-hmm. the other one, you know, mostly it's him writing on blackboards and stuff, but uh, or whiteboards or whatever. He's writing mm. on stuff, you know, and it's kind of his obsession with numbers. So much science, yes. Yeah, because because he understands numbers and doesn't understand people. Mm. Yeah, but they're, um, um, yeah, they're quite good little nerdy scientist characters, and I like uh, Newt's fascination with the kaiju and that he's a bit of a uh, a kaiju groupie. Yeah, a groupie. Yeah, <laughs> but he has the um, he has the, the tattoo. And I think one of them's the tattoo that killed Raleigh's brother, isn't it? Uh, no. It's, um, so he has a tattoo of one of the ones that, um, Raleigh and his brother took down. Yeah, it just looks like it has a kind of knife head. No, he doesn't have knife head on, uh, he has, a, I forget the name of, um, the code name, um, Oh, Yama Yamarachi. So he has an Amer- a, a Japanese code name. Yeah. And and Raleigh notices it in the lift scene, and he says, Ah, you know, yeah, my brother took him down in in twenty seventeen, twenty seventeen, or something like that. Yeah. Um, Must have missed that year. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then Newt says, Oh yeah, like he was two hundred two and a half thousand ton, t- thousand tons of awesome. And they, and then just like collectively, everybody looks at him like, what the hell dude? <laughs> <laughs> like you didn't just say that. Um, and he's like, Oh, I mean, you know, or terrible depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, I do like that fascination I think is what makes him a scientist. Like that yeah. idea that the kaiju are awesome and worth studying to the extent of mind melding with one and finding out, like something directly from their brain like that's you know peak that's peak scientific curiosity it doesn't get more sciencey than that i don't think yeah. and then he's a bit of a fanboy as well which ties back into the whole um you know there was this whole culture that grew up out of the out of the attacks you know you mm-hmm. see the people in uh felt suits just punching each other on talk shows and and things like that so it's that yeah there's there's an entire there's an entire source of fandom built up around these. You know, people have found entertainment in it, which is, again, very human. It's really horrible, but mm-hmm. let's find a way to laugh at it a couple of years later. Yeah, um, the it's that bit in the uh, prologue that says that, that monsters became toys. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the one, like, uh, foamy, like, kaiju on a Japanese talk show, like, being silly... Like it's 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 just yeah such a human thing like yeah we do that yeah and then when you see it in Hong Kong how there's 
like shanty towns growing up around Kaiju remains as well. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like um, the, the using like the the rib cage and stuff as a. I don't know. I don't know if it's actually a dwelling, but it's definitely like a decorative thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's this entire change in culture because of it, and it would be because it is persistent. You know, it's, um, I guess it's what every six months. Um, or something like, or every three months, or something like that. They they do give you the figure. I can't remember what it is. Uh, when it first started, well, it was like twenty four weeks or something. Yeah, so it's it's incremental. So it's um, I, I forget I forget the sciency word that Herman uses, but basically um, every every attack is is in a shorter and shorter space of time. Like there, the yeah. space between attacks is shorter and shorter. Uh, like it starts off with six months. Then like shorter than that, shorter than that, and by the end of the film, like they are expecting a double event within a week. Yeah, and then a and, triple event. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. So, yeah, like it's 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 a very natural kind of progression of of things like for humans to kind of assimilate this into their new normal. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, to, to circle back to, like, the, the idea of fantastic world building, um, really believable, you know, real um, elements of culture, because because that's what humans do. Like, it's not a far cry for us to believe that we would do this if there were giant monsters invading Earth and, you know, if we were fighting them with giant robots like that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and even the uh, classification system it kind of sanitizes it a little bit. It does. It's, it's, okay, there's a giant monster attacking. It's pretty horrible, but it's category three, so it's nothing we haven't dealt with before, you know, mm. or whatever category they they um yeah they happen to be. So it's yeah, it's okay. We'll, we'll send out a Jaeger. It'll be dealt with. Just you know, don't go outside. You'll be yeah. fine. It's like the same as a hurricane. You know, we we know how to deal with this sort of. Um, it's fine. Just try not to panic. Yeah. Um, it's all about keeping people less afraid. And then they decide to build giant walls. Because, you know, that's a great idea. I mean, <laughs> they, I guess, you know, that's that's something that bothers me about, like, the first specific Rim film. Like, when they decide to discontinue um, the Jaeger program, instead of, like, I don't know, pouring in support because obviously it's the only defense tactic that works yeah you know like there's no guarantee that a massive kaiju won't come along that is so big that you know the wall will be nothing to it and eventually one does come along and it does that and it's like what did you think was going to happen (laughs) um yeah like the idea that oh you know like we can't we can't really afford to like blah blah we're just gonna build a wall and it's like I mean, do you want to die? Like, how 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 did you justify this decision? Um, it just it it does feel a little bit of a manufactured kind of crisis point. Yeah, although it wouldn't be the first set of world leaders to make a really stupid decision on the back of a crisis. So, you know, it's this believable in that true. sense. Yeah, I guess um, so. That's the, you're right. And the film immediately calls it out as a stupid idea. You know, you've got the graffiti on the sign. You know, completion date never. Um, and th- you get the sense that people are only there because they're being that's the only work they can get so they're you know 
building this thing that they don't really believe in, but they've got to eat and it's the only work going. Yeah. So there's there's that part of it as well. So it's kind of the the economic effect, I suppose. I mean, you don't get a sense of what it's done to big business and stuff. You know that there's no like international tension. Everyone in the world gets along and builds giant robots together. But um, <laughs> other than that, you don't really know what happens to the world economy. And, you know, I'm not that interested to find out because that's a scene I don't need to see. You know, it's Phantom Menace style, people sitting there talking about budgets and trade negotiations and all that. Yeah, you don't need that. <laughs> you just need to know that, hmm. you know, there, there's something to defend. And it feels like there is a world out there to defend, at least. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a moment in the film whenever um, Raleigh is about to sort of relaunch into uh, Gypsy Danger and there's a moment on TV where the American leader says, you know, we're, we've moved everybody inland 300 miles, you know, we're yeah. safe. And somebody says, yeah, like for the rich and powerful, but what about the rest of us? Mm-hmm. And that's a side of, of this conflict that, you know, I would love to see more of, you know, the idea of what happens to the little people, what happens to, you know, the people who aren't rich and powerful enough to guarantee a move inland, you know, like yeah. is there what cultural shift happens to the cities and towns that can't afford to be moved. And so they just stay on the coast and hope that they won't get attacked. Yeah. Um, you know, like that, that, that's a very, again, real kind of human thing. And that's interesting to me than, you know, the one scene of the leader saying, well, you know, that's it. We're packing up and leaving. Um, you know, like, I want to see what happens to people. Um, and maybe we'll see more of that in the sequel. Maybe not. Maybe. Yeah. No idea what the sequel's bringing. Mm. Absolutely no idea. Because this film, it almost doesn't need a sequel because it resolves itself. You know, Exactly. I mean, it's the fixed. end of the war. Yeah. yeah. I, I was always hoping that if they were going to do another film... We were going to have a look into, um, y- y- you know, either either the first attack or at any point during the war. You know, the, you, you have 15 years worth of battles with kaiju and, you know, characters we haven't met or perhaps characters we have met. Um, you know, a younger stacker, a younger Mako. Um, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. could do that. Um or maybe the, when there's no unifying threat to deal with, humans start fighting mm-hmm. each other again, and then you get the, you know, Jaegers fighting Jaegers conceit, which I'm sure will be in there. I mean, um, uh, I, mm. I don't imagine they'll do a sequel and decide not to, you know, we'll, we'll see the robots fighting each other for some reason. But um, you could almost do that, bring back the international tension yeah. thing, because... You know, it's fine that they're working together against a single threat, but once that threat's gone, has everything really went away? Probably not. Mm. You know, world peace is kind of, or at least in the world we live in, feels unrealistic. So I I can understand that countries will work together when there's a necessity, but maybe there's different agendas at play once that necessity's gone. Yeah, awesome. and that could be an interesting story in and of itself. I don't know yeah. that, you know, the majority of filmgoers who 
go to see films like Pacific Rim would enjoy a downtime kind of story, I definitely would. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why you have Jaeger fighting yeah, each other. There's a, there's a lot to say. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's why you do that. Yeah. 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 Or, I don't know, have them, <laughs> um, have them possess a, or resurrect a, a kaiju from using mad science. I don't know. You could do plenty of things. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, but I think from the from what I know about the sequel, it's just the rift opens again, uh, and stuff comes through, and they have to fight again. Mm. Um, I've heard something about kaiju's that also wear mech elements. <laughs> of course, there is. Um, and yeah, and I think there's a a moment in the trailer that says, you know, they, they couldn't have opened the rift. From there, somebody let them in from our world. All right. Uh, and it cuts to like this Asian lady who looks sinister because she has like eyebrows that are perfect. Um, <laughs> so like I, I don't I don't know what what the deal is. Uh, I'm very skeptical because because the trailer looks like the kind of movie that you think the first one would have been, um, and then the first one turned out to actually be a lot deeper than than the surface would allow you to believe. Yeah. That being said, that's also how I felt, how I personally felt about the trailer for the first film. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that, you know, oh, here's this vapid, like, mecha blockbuster nonsense, you know, like, is this Transformers again? I kind of don't care, you know? Um, that's the one clip I have seen. It's like the, you know, the panning shot of them all like cocking their weapons. Yeah. And it's like that's, that's just oh, straight yeah. out of Transformers. Right. It's like, do we need this? Like, there's four, or five Transformer movies now. Yeah. You know, like we stop it, stop it. If we wanted another Transformers movie, then that's what you'd be making. You know. And they're apparently more agile in the in the footage from the second one as well, um, which is one of the things I really liked about this one. You know, they move like machines. Yeah, they're, they're rust buckets, very, yes. Yeah, very deliberate, very uh, very lumbering. You mm-hmm. know, it's, they're just, they're massive things and they can't yeah. do somersaults. Mm-hmm. And especially um, the way that they move in the sea. Yeah. Um, or, or when, you know, Gypsy Danger is like running through Hong Kong and it's like, you know, l- slow to move and to react because yeah. it's a machine. You know, it's like the size of it impedes like movement as quickly, you know, it's not human, it's not human sized. Um, and yeah, the, the, they definitely paid a lot of attention to the size of things and how realistically they would move. Um, and I do agree. They look more limber in the, in the trailer for the new film. Yeah. And there's got to be some element of delay between them thinking about doing something or like with the mime it as well. But uh, there's got to be, you know, fractions of a second maybe, but there'll be a delay between them doing that and then the 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 robot responding. Because you yeah. kind of you see that a couple of times where, you know, the, like the whole check for a pulse moment, you like rally turns round, and then the next shot is Gypsy turning round. But then, you know, obviously it's, it could just be editing, but I get the impression that that doesn't happen till after he does that. Because it wouldn't, it wouldn't be one to one, you know, real time communication, would it? Because you are piloting a machine at the end of the day, and it has to respond to your movement, which will take time because it has to recognise what that movement is before it responds to it. 
Yeah. So that's all. I mean, that's all fine. Um, if they abandon that in the sequel, then it will just be Transformers. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm gonna go in, you know, with. <laughs> <laughs> very skeptical mind. <laughs> I I am worried that it's going to be the vapid kind of destruction-filled mecha nonsense that um, a lot of people who haven't seen the first one, um, <laughs> you know, describe the first one as, um, and or you know, people who don't like it. Which you know, hey, fair enough. You know, you don't like. Not for well, this, yeah, you know, yeah. you don't like what the story is. It's okay. It's fine. You know, like we can we can agree to disagree. I think yeah. there's a lot of heart to the first Pacific Rim film. Um, there's a lot of you know human vulnerability um, that really lends itself to like just making this this massive, massive, completely unrealistic, hundred percent silly concept. It kind of makes it feel, you know, sad and tragic at times. It has such such emotional depth, I think. You know, there's a lot to unpack in a lot of the characters that, you know, maybe not at first glance. Maybe, you know, you have to see the film a couple of times. Um, but the performances are really good. Um, you know, the script, even the script, you know, like, it's, for, for, for what this film, like started out as conceptually like it's i don't know i think i think it's really deep actually and well well formed and well written yeah and i think the the emotional heart of it comes from mako and Mm. um and and what she kind of goes through the when she gets finally gets into um a jaeger it's kind of uh pentecost's fears are you know are confirmed because mm. she can't handle it, and the first, I'm guess, I mean, it's in the subtext, but it feels like he thinks as soon as she, you know, as soon as she goes into the drift, this is what she's going to latch on to, and it's going to prove it. It's going to make her really ineffective, and I mean, what happens is she almost kills everyone, you know, because she's uh, she remembers being that scared little girl, and it's like, what if I had a weapon that could stop this thing? And then she's actually in a weapon that could stop this thing, uh, but obviously it's a memory and it's not actually there. Yeah. So there is that. I mean, that that idea that this is exactly what I was afraid of. Yeah. And she, and she kind of has to overcome that. Although she does that because yeah, we've got no one else. You might as well. You just have to go. Like either that or everyone dies anyway. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm I'm glad that it comes to that because if that connection had had worked perfectly the first time around, you know, we wouldn't really have a story. There's no point the whole in the scene. idea, yeah. exactly, yeah, and the whole idea is that, you know, he's been protecting her for so long. Yes, she's done well in simulations, but that doesn't mean she'll do well in the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and like, f- facing that challenge is important for her as well. Yeah, because the first thing she does is she latches on to her worst memory you know just being that mm-hmm. that little girl running away from a monster but then and i like that you see the other side of that memory as well the positive side of it you know the the point mm-hmm. where she gets rescued that's um you know it's obviously really pivotal and it's almost like she ignores that but riley sees it and she doesn't or she chooses not to remember mm-hmm. that part so 
again, there's a lot there. And I remember when I saw the first trailer, I was thinking, oh, that, that's um, that, that's the that's where the depth's coming in. It's with that um, you know that mind melding stuff, and and it kind of is, although they don't do enough with it. Like there's it's kind of at the start. It's like, okay, what what does it mean for someone who's who experiences someone else's death as as they experience it and then go on living, and that's interesting. And then you've got the yeah. um, Mako's freak out where she goes relives her memory, and then that's really it. There isn't anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you've got the bit where where Stacker says, "I'll be able to drift through you just fine because I know I understand exactly who you are, and it's not a problem for me." Hmm. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I don't know that drift compatibility is much of, like, the the worry that they have. You know, he, they're the only, the two only people left, pretty much. Yeah. And it's like, all right, like, we've, we've got to pilot this thing. It'll be okay, I guess. Um, <laughs> you yeah. know, because, like, I refuse to believe that Stacker Pentecost and Chuck Hansen are drift compatible. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, they I really don't argue so. when they're in the um, thing as well, so. Yeah, exactly. It, it so, itself. you know, at, the, at that point, it's just, uh, it, it, it's it's only really about moving this machine to where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, le- you know, less about fighting and, you know, being in sync with each other. Yeah, and that underwater and, and sequence that, is by far the mm-hmm. least impressive as well. I guess so. I mean, compared to what you just had with the uh, the big Hong Kong battle, you know, after that, it's that that is the the hook, you know, and then after that, it's just you know, well, everything yeah, after the, I mean, the, 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 rest the, is the Hong Kong scene. Yeah, the Hong Kong scene is is the highest kind of it is it is the climax. It is the yeah. the point at which we feel that it's the absolute worst, you know, set of circumstances. It couldn't possibly get any worse. Yeah. Like at the point where they get to the to the rift, it's like okay, you know, like they're gonna they have to find a way out of this now. Like it's got it's gotta it's gotta resolve itself. Yeah. Um, but the Hong Kong scene, yeah, for sure, like, yeah, it, it goes much worse for them than they anticipate. Yeah, it's like when a Category 5 shows up, it's not that big a deal, because all they do is jump into it, and then it's dealt with. That's yeah. it, you know, it's like, oh, well, we're building up to that, and you know, <laughs> that, that was kind of rubbish. You know, those, those Category 4s, <laughs> they, were, they were more formidable. Yeah, I love the Hong Kong scene, especially seeing the uh, the other Jaegers in action albeit briefly, when they mm-hmm. all just get decimated. Um, I know, it's devastating. <laughs> um, I have a lot of feelings about the side characters that we never get to know. Um, the Russians, the, the married couple, the Russians, and yeah. and the Chinese triplets, you know, like their stories and their their fighting techniques and and their culture and you know, what it means to be a part of this, like, international team of defense, you know, like, it's it's just so cool um, to see a film, to see a blockbuster, because that doesn't really happen ever, I don't think, to have a blockbuster where it is truly an international effort. The only Americans there is Raleigh, presumably, uh, I'm guessing he's meant to be American, I don't I know. So. Yeah. Um, and then, like, 
I guess, I guess, Newt, a little bit, uh, even though he's German, but he's grown up in the U.S., and then, like, everybody's from everywhere else. We've got yeah. Marco from Japan, the Chinese kids, the Russians, the Australians, one British guy for some reason, um, <laughs> even though Britain is decidedly not on the Pacific Rim, but sure, um, you know, we'll have the English guy because he's he he has a great commanding presence. OK, uh, <laughs> stop asking questions. We'll, we'll have um, the English guy because we asked Idris Elba and he said yes. And we did. And he said that. yes. <laughs> and he's awesome. So yeah. we're going to let him talk with his own accent because he is badass. Um, but yeah, uh, I love how like international it is, how, you know, well balanced that is. And even how the, the different the the approach is coming in from like a non-american perspective yeah yeah and you don't see much of that but you get a, a kind of sense of it you certainly yes. get the impression that they've been working together a long time at least you know mm-hmm. they, they know their they know how to use their machines um, yes not you don't get much more than that because they don't last that long but the mm. the whole idea is they come up against something that they they don't expect you know the the acid for instance that's um that's quite a a surprise and it just burns through the the jaeger and that's the end of them and then uh, mm-hmm. i forget what happened to um i can't even remember the name of the one the, the you know the triplets i think they just get whacked by the tail or something like that and then that's it yeah yeah um it's just cool to see multiple stuff going on and then um, you already get a sense of Striker Eureka and what that can do so it doesn't participate in that mm-hmm. fight because you've already seen that, you saw it earlier in the film uh, Yeah, exactly Yeah, with its, um, with its chest missiles and stuff which, you know, are just mm-hmm. cool uh, <laughs> Although, yeah, like how many times can you use that? <laughs> you know, at some point you run out of missiles and then what? I think it's just once, isn't it? You know, unless it's like a video game. Mm. Just, uh, we don't know where these come from. They're, they're just they're just lots of it's <laughs> reload <fun>. somehow. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's probably one of those kind of last ditch effort type things. But um, you know, uh, it's just like uh, the the plasma cannon. You get the impression that they're not supposed to use that unless it's really desperate. Yeah. Because they get told off for doing it at the start of the film. Despite the fact that they, well, they didn't kill anything, but it was that classic movie mistake of check that the bad guy is dead. Yes. And then Riley does learn from that, funnily enough. Because <laughs> later on, he just, you know, yeah. Yeah, let's just blow this thing into the clip. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny that they forget uh, about the one sword. One of the though. biggest. Exactly. I was going to say about the sword. Because um, one of the biggest kind of, uh, you know, pet peeves of a lot of people who see the film. You know, the, one of the biggest kind of plot holy type criticisms is, oh, but why didn't they use the sword earlier? Why didn't they use the sword all the time? To which I have to say, um, the sword moment is one of the most anime moments in this movie. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's interesting that the fighting style of Gypsy Danger changes when Mako becomes its pilot. Mm-hmm. Because uh, when we see the first the first time that we see Gypsy Danger is Raleigh and his brother Yancey, and they kind of fight in quite a conventional kind of way. You know, there's a lot of punching, there's a headlock, um, you know, they, they don't really, and, and eventually they use the plasma cannon. Uh, 
Um, But when Raleigh and Mako do the first pilot test, the first stance that they assume, and and here is the first difference, in uh, Yancey and Raleigh would do like this pun, uh, like fist slams into open palm kind of thing as an opening gesture. Like yeah. a like, like like a you know like a like yeah. holding yeah um I'm I'm obviously like I'm mimicking this but I realize <laughs> that our listeners at home cannot see what I'm doing um can't see what I'm doing because we're not on video chat so yeah sorry guys um yeah and then when Mako comes on uh, as a co-pilot the first stance that they assume is like a, a karate like pose of one arm is kind of extended the other one closer to the chest um you know like as a as an opening kind of gesture they do that which is you know distinctly a more asian like martial arts move um and then later when they fight like it's it's they move differently to how raleigh used to with his brother and then when the sword comes out it's like well like at this point like maybe Maybe she installed it, you know? Like, she has been in charge of repairing Gypsy and all the other Mark III's. Maybe she put it on, you know? <laughs> yeah, and Riley didn't read the instruction manual before going Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know? He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who reads instruction manuals. <laughs> um, yeah, I always got the impression so, that... Yeah. He- yeah, I got the impression that he and his brother would win just out of kind of dumb luck almost. Let's just keep mm-hmm, punching this mm-hmm. thing until it dies. And then hundred percent, yes. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. but but when Mako's there, the the first thing they do is they dodge the acid and then they rip out the, the acid gland. So it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay, there's a bit of tactics going on here. So they're you know, they're actually or she's at least thinking about what they're doing, even if he isn't. So there yes. is yeah, there's definitely that kind of alteration in, in the fighting style. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's quite cool to see because, and it's good that you get that opening bit because it gives you that, you know, it gives you that um, drift compatibility. It does mean that there there will be differences if there's different people in the same machine. It's not like, you know, the tactics aren't always the same. Exactly. Yeah, that it does depend on the pilots it's uh, it's one of the lines in the prologue um when raleigh says you know that a jaeger is only as good as its pilots yeah i think um chuck hansen says that at some point as well mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. says something about the the jaeger program ended because of mediocre pilots mm-hmm. which is just him being like i'm the best and you all suck <laughs> but you know there, there's an element of truth to that at least for sure yeah, yeah. And of course, the the sword bit, the the real answer to why did they wait until then is it's because it's cool. And it, <laughs> also, that yeah, um, I, I don't like. The, <laughs> and the the one way out of it is to cut it with a sword. It's just hell, cool. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I I don't know that you know it's it's something that a hero would think like in the heat of battle. Yeah. Um. But, you know, certainly narratively and, you know, visually, this is, yeah, visually, yeah, it is, it is cool. It is interesting. And you wouldn't just whip that out from the first scene because then it wouldn't be cool when that happened. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just at that point where it's, oh, no, they can fly. This is amazing. And (laughs) (laughs) 
and oh look they're giving birth for some reason that's mm. you know that'll help us later and um that leads to a bit of a funny moment with Hannibal Chow where he's like look at this look how well I know how these things work I saw I, I knew it was going to suffocate because it hadn't its lungs weren't formed or something and then it gets eaten you know it's, mm. it's, it's almost the deep blue sea moment but it's not quite as good but it's um yeah the deep, the deep blue sea moment you know <laughs> like it, <it's> almost, <laughs> they, they keep trying to replicate that in certain things and there's of course the post-credit scene that reveals that Hannibal Chow is alive yeah <laughs> well, I don't think he's in the sequel I think he's just there because he's in all of yeah, Del Toro's I mean, things yeah I don't think that that post-credit scene was meant as a link to something else no, it's just uh, funny. That's that's a, yeah. It's it's a very Marvel kind of concept, you know. The 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 post credit scene is important because it will give you a clue. Um, and and even Marvel have taken to like in their in their three in their last three films, um, they have decidedly like removed that like one of the post credit scenes might be a link to one of the next films, but then the other post credit scene will just be funny yeah um and i like that and i i like that you know the pacific rim post credit scene is just you know were you wondering what happened to ron perlman or here's what happened to him yeah. um, <laughs> it, it reminded me of the hellboy post credit scene actually where it's mm. uh, i forget his name but jeffrey tambor's character is just left in the the place they were at the end mm. it's because um you know it's one thing you might not notice when you're watching the film but they leave and he isn't there and then <laughs> it turns out they forgot him or just didn't bother about him mm. but, uh, obviously it's not it's not a link into the sequel you know and it doesn't even get mentioned in the sequel it's just it's just funny and it's, it kind of rewards people a little bit who decided to stay um i actually mm. didn't know the hellboy one existed until years later because uh-huh. um well, I just uh, I saw it in the cinema once and then left. And then, oh, I see. Yeah, you know, um, in this one it comes after the animated credits, yes. which I usually will sit through because they look cool. Yeah, uh, I'll confess the list of names, unless it's like a Marvel film, I won't. Um, well, I don't know. Like, I like I personally, and this is a weird thing I do because, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I'm Greek, and so I always sit through the credits and I look through Greek for Greek names in the credits. <laughs> um, and then I cheer the Greek names, and I'm like, hell yeah, George Papadopoulos, you go, <laughs> first accountant. Um, there's there's usually Greek people in the accountant uh, um, part of the production for some <laughs> reason. I don't know that we're necessarily better at math, but, you know, it just so happens. Um, yeah. Or, you know, like there might be some people working in visual effects or, you know, um, any any part of the production really, you know, like I'm just always there scanning for Greek names. Uh, but that's just a thing, like a habit I've built over years and years of just going to see films and, you know, wanting to see Greek people like succeed in the world of films because, you know, it's a small country. We don't really have like much of a, um, a um, an industry really. And so just seeing Greek people make it is like, yes! You did it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. But obviously in the last sort of ten years with Marvel, like, I'm just like, especially if it's a Marvel movie, like, you've got to stay till the end. Yeah. Um, and I'm always, you know, flabbergasted at people getting up and leaving, 
the the minute that the screen goes dark, because it's a Marvel movie, there's going to be two <laughs> post credit scenes. We know this. <laughs> Until yeah. the lights go up, I'm not leaving my seat. I don't know where you are going. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like it's 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 a funny thing. Uh, but I'm glad that the Pacific Rim thing, you know, like it was, I think, made as a very standalone film. I don't read any of the ending, you know, as as intending to make another film. No. And sometimes that's okay. Um, you know, we, we love getting sequels of the stuff that we like. And I, you know, I'm always a proponent of, is this an original thing? Can we get more of this original thing? Amazing. Yes, let's do it. Um, but not as not as a rule. Like, I don't, I don't think that it's necessary, hey, we got a good film, we have to make another one. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, if I the don't story... Either. Yeah, you know, like, if, if the story doesn't call for another one, then it's okay. Like, you got one good film. Maybe go out, find some more cool original stuff, make another cool new original thing. Like, people love this stuff. Of yeah. course we do. Well, judging so, by the box office... Certainly, mm-hmm. the domestic box office for it. it. People don't love that stuff, you know, because mm. that was the sticking point on the sequel, wasn't it? That it didn't make enough money to be a priority. Oh. But, you know, it it only turned a profit really when it hit China, I think, because mm. uh, they, you know, that that boosted it to its kind of well above its budget sort of thing. But um, it's just one of those things, and maybe it will be better without a sequel. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the sequel is going to be. It could be amazing. It could just be a really terrible marketing. Yeah. And it wouldn't be the first time. True. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking back to The Grey, for instance, that Liam Neeson film. You know, the, Oh, yes. The marketing for that is for a different film. You know, you could mm-hmm. almost you could almost uh, get it sued for false advertising at this rate, you know. The, um, so it could just be badly marketed, and I hope <laughs> it is, because I do want to see mm. more of this world, and I'm interested to see what they could do with a sequel. Although maybe I'd be more interested in an animated series because... Yeah, I think it would make an excellent animated series. Absolutely. Yeah, and then you can tell those like little insular stories, you know, the smaller things, the the, the mm-hmm. problem of the week type thing. And, um, and it doesn't have to be huge, you know, and you don't have to have Transformers-style visuals and, you know, all that stuff. And I think, I think that's fine. Um... But again, the sequel's out in, what, two weeks? Might be good. I don't know. I'm sure it'll be at least fun in places. Yeah, I'm sure I'll enjoy at least some of it. I don't expect to hate all of it. Uh, but I do. I am going in with, you know, immense amounts of love for the original film. And I'm not sure that this will live up to it. And it's always a very difficult kind of position to be in um, because we don't know what to expect um, and I don't really know what I want out of this to be quite honest like I I don't know what would make a good sequel yeah Um, so you know keeping an open mind is essential and as long as it's fun I guess you know shrug (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I compared it to Independence Day earlier with a speech, but it's almost a lot like Independence Day, as in they're making a sequel and no one can figure out why, because the the first film is closed. And, you know, 
I'm actually one of those people that would hold my hands up and say I don't mind the Independence Day sequel. I don't think it's great, but mm. um, you know, at least they have a more charismatic son of main character from the from the previous film than that film did. Uh, Independence mm. Day two really suffered from its lack of Will Smith. That's for sure. Um, yeah, but I think John Boyega will be a good follow up to Idris Elba. Based on what I've seen of him so far, I haven't seen a lot of him, to be fair, but he seems mm-hmm. like he's pretty good. I really liked John Boyega in Star Wars, um, and I really liked him in Attack the Block as well. I, th- I think he definitely has action star chops, and this is the right kind of film for him to, to show that. Yeah. Um, being a London boy as well, you know, he gets to, like be a London man like his his fictional dad Idris Elba with his London accent <laughs> in a Pacific <laughs> setting because yeah. why not why not really is is the essence of Pacific Rim it's like <laughs> you know what would happen if this why why not why not build giant robots why not like punch them in the face until they die <laughs> why not you know hide a sword in the in the wrist of the robot like yes just just yes um and and it's it's the it's the delicate balance of a film that is really silly is really honest about it you know like at no point does it pretend to be a serious movie you know yeah and yet it is serious about being silly yeah um <laughs> you know like it's it takes itself just seriously enough to kind of build this world that's really believable um but then the rest of it is just kind of you know ridiculous action sequences that are enormously satisfying and that's why it works um you know peppered with with actual character development and you know great world building details it's yeah like that's that's what makes pacific rim good for me i think well, it takes the time to let you invest in those characters so when they are out there fighting it's yeah it's it's not just i don't know who this is mm-hmm. you know and to compare it to transformers i mean mm-hmm. uh, i'm i'm someone who doesn't mind the Transformers films, although I'm completely sick of them now, especially after mm. the last one. Yeah. But I didn't, you know, I was kind of, oh, I wasn't defending them, but I was like, yeah, I understand that they're crap. I yeah. understand all these problems, but I also don't mind them to an extent. And But in the fights in those ones, you know, I can enjoy them for the empty spectacle that they are, or at least I used mm-hmm. to be able to. And yeah. But what will happen is there's a robot that I've maybe seen earlier once, who's like killed and I'm like I have no idea who that was or why I should care so it's just it's metal just being destroyed but the at least I get the sense that there 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 are people in this film that you know when they die it means something so maybe not so much the the other two teams um because you only see them you only see them when they're introduced you don't see them again uh, and then they appear when they they go out to fight but then when you've got like uh, Stacker and uh, Chuck when they when they're killed, um, that means something because you've seen them throughout the film, and then you have um, Herc in the background, and he has that kind of that look when he realizes he's outlived his son, and that there's weight to that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it does exactly. It there's does a lot of there's a lot of 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of little moments like that uh, that that really like make you. Yeah, as you said, like they suck you into to the humanity of it all, and you know you do. I personally, I mean, I didn't expect any of that in a movie about giant robots and giant monsters. No. No. And you know, like I, 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 I thought we were not gonna get any of it, and instead we get a lot of it. So yeah. yeah. And I'm sure the technology could have existed that they could have sat in a helicopter nearby and controlled the the robot, but then they're not in the fight at that point. You know, you need mm. them to kind of be there. Yeah. It's like in the, the Marvel films, how Tony Stark could just remote control suits into combat every time, and they haven't really explained why he doesn't, but yeah. if he did if he did that every time, then it would just be a hunk of metal that's getting destroyed, and that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, and every time that they do that in the Marvel films, it's it's just less and less... Like interesting. It's like, oh, okay. It's just empty suits again. Cool, nice. Yeah. You know, like there's no stakes, and yeah. you gotta have stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they could they could easily have done that with this film, but obviously they, you need that human element. So they need to be there, and if their robot gets gets destroyed, they're killed. And yeah. it's as simple as that. And and they establish that very early on how dangerous it is because when Yancey gets pulled out from the cockpit, it's like, yeah, they're not safe in here. You know, they they have to be on their toes, they have to be paying attention, they have to be good at what they do, and these creatures are getting more uh, more used to killing them all the time. So it's, you know, they're, they're fighting a foe that learns and knows how to adapt to them, and it does build the stakes quite well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm actually immensely appreciative that they didn't do anything with the... Because it did seem at one point like they were trying to build a bit of a love connection... And then they don't ever pull the pin on it. Thank you. Yes. 100%. Uh, internet high five from <laughs> London for you. Because, oh my gosh, yes. Affected. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, this is one of the biggest like selling points of the film for me. The fact that the Raleigh and Mako connection does not get romanticized. Um, it is not necessarily a romance blooming between them. It might you know, maybe it's just friendship. Maybe it's just like, hey, we just saved the world. Yay, all right, bye now. You know, like, it's never made into, like, this big romance that, you know, also he has to get the girl. Because most of these films have that. Yeah. But this one doesn't. It's about saving the world and saving the world only. Um, and, yeah, I completely agree with you. It's it's so, it's so good, and I appreciate it so much. Yes. Yeah. Although there are scenes early on where it suggests it might head that way. Mm. You know, there's that those kind of furtive glances between them. And, oh, uh, yeah. And when yeah. she looks at him shirtless and she, yeah. like, blushes, it's it's really <laughs> funny. Um, yeah. And maybe, you know, like, I, I wouldn't mind if it happens after. You know, if it's something yeah. that, you know, they explore after they've saved the world. But, you know, within, you know, the narrative of the story, you know, like, there's no time to think about whether, you know, does he like me? Do I like her? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Like, no, like, there's no no time for this. The world is ending, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I like this. Um, and also, doesn't that make any potential romance kind of stronger? You know, like, it starts off as this, like, great connection between them. They, they think alike they they are compatible and you know whether that means a good relationship later like yeah 
like I really like that. Mm-hmm. And they may never find out anyway, just because he isn't in the second one that I'm aware I of. I know, and that bothers me a little bit. Um, because like a lot of the main characters are there. Stacker is not because he has cancer dead. and yeah. died in the rift and like all these things. So like, like he's gone, fine. Yeah, he was um, blown to bits. He's pretty dead. Yeah, I would hate <laughs> to find out um, that Raleigh has died off camera between the films. Will Smith style. I'm, yeah, I am not a particular fan of that uh, approach. It's it's. I suppose, you know, it's the easiest one to explain a character's uh, absence, but it's also lazy, and yeah. I, I, I don't like it. I hope I hope that they do something else. Yeah, because she's in it, isn't she? She is, yes, and yeah. Newton Herman are, and um, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's, it's if uh, Hannibal Chow is in it. I don't think so. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, they teased that they, that Stacker would always be found in the drift, so maybe there'll be a cameo that we don't know about. Ooh, that might be interesting. Yeah, he can sort of, she can sort of commune with him, I don't know, yeah, <laughs> in yeah, some in way. Memory. That might yeah. be, yeah, that might be interesting. Yeah. Um, but yes, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do, how they're going to explain away uh, Raleigh not being there. Um you know, if, if they do something silly, like he and Mako got together and then, you know, they got married, but then he died. And so here we are now. Like, ugh. <laughs> well, you know, at that point, I'm going to groan my way out of the <laughs> out of the cinema. Just like, right, I'm yeah. done. I know this has only been on for two minutes, but I'm not watching this. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, um, he was pretty close to a nuclear explosion, so. Yeah. I guess? Hmm. I suppose. Maybe. I'm squinting, but you can't see me right now. But I am squinting. <laughs> and um, it, it could be, well, it, it might not be interesting, but there would be some kind of symmetry to the potential her, well, her father, mm-hmm. in inverted commas, died of cancer, and yeah. so did her husband. Yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't die of cancer, but he, he like, had cancer. Yes. And then, you know, he was yeah. atomized. He almost died of cancer <laughs> until, yeah, cancer. until he blew himself up. So, <laughs> yeah. He was keeping the cancer at bay with fisherman friends. We... <laughs> That's all I could think of when he was taking them. Was... <laughs> now I can't unsee it. Yeah, I hope he it. was minty fresh the whole <laughs> film. Ruined the film for you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just like because I was I was watching bits of it before we started recording, and there is you know the, the the those ubiquitous scenes in the lifts where he takes out his little little box and takes a pill, <laughs> and now now I'll just be like, well, minty fresh, Idris. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it probably it probably was mints. Yeah. I don't I don't get the logic behind the whole um, you know, oh yeah, in the first generation of Jaegers, we forgot about radiation shielding. It's like. It's quite a fundamental really? thing to forget. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> really, of all the things to forget, that doesn't and, sound like yeah. I mean, as hmm. justification for having cancer, you don't really need to justify it. You know, it's <laughs> I have cancer. It happens. You know, you it's fine. I mean, suppose the point of view is to to the kind of everything he sacrificed is now is what is killing him. You know, the his, like his obsession with the war, which isn't in the film really. 
uh, is what ends up killing him because he they cut corners and he's happy to do that. Like, mm. You know, I can see what they might have been going for there, but ultimately, if they just said I have cancer, it'd be like right, whatever. Well, yeah. yeah. It yeah, happens. exactly. Yeah. Uh, cancer happens even before Jaegers, yes. Yeah. yeah. It just happens, you know, fine. Yeah, it's a thing. I can, mm. I can deal with that. Yeah. So, do you have anything else to say on the kind of expanded universe, or is there only those three things? Uh, it's just those. Um, there's, there's a new novel that came out in 2016 called uh, Tales from the Drift, and Beecham wrote that, so... Um, that I think that was supposed to be the connecting anime series, uh, animated series that never happened. Right. Um, and then there is, I was looking at Amazon earlier, and there is a prequel novel to Uprising. Okay. Uh, which is meant to bridge the gap between the first film and the second. Although I assume it's not necessary, obviously. Like, they're going to bridge that gap with the first five minutes. They're going to yeah. tell us what has happened. Um, but maybe that might shed some more light into the world. Um, I will read it. I think it would be cool. Um, yeah, I don't know how necessary it is, obviously, because I don't know what's in it, but yes. Yeah. So that's that's kind of everything. Probably not hugely necessary. No, I, don't, all... I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, the... the um, None of it is, and none of it should be. You know, I, I am a firm believer in, you know, any necessary information, you put it in your, in the film. I shouldn't have to, like, read companion books yeah. to understand or enjoy it. Um, but the companion books are fun for those who want to, and perhaps they enrich, you know, the, the film and its world. Yeah. Um, I know that I'm, I'm extremely guilty of like conflating all of the information that I know about Pacific Rim and kind of like going, but isn't that in the film? And then like, it isn't. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Um, and it's okay. You know, like it's, 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 it's fine not to, you know, get involved in the extended universe type stuff. Um, but this one's one of the franchises that I'm actually really into, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get that prequel book and Tales from the Drift, and I'll update you on how it is, <laughs> on how on how worthwhile it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a bit like that with comic book movies or or comic book stuff in general. You know, like especially on TV as well. I'll find that my mind fills in the gaps because I know how they did it in the comics, and then uh, uh, and then I'll talk to someone that has no idea about the source material, and then they're like, uh, that, "That was a load of rubbish. They don't explain that." And I'm sitting there thinking. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, have a good. Yeah. <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose it doesn't. I understand that. Why? Well, yeah, well, yeah, mm. yeah. I'm just looking on Amazon, and there's a bunch of like toys and stuff that I kind of want, but, <laughs> but they're all from the second film. Oh mm. yeah, I remember when the first film came out. I think they only really made Gypsy Danger, um, at, like as a as a figurine, because I because I was looking into getting some, uh, like. Like I don't know, paraphernalia. I I got ba uh, badges and pins because um, mm. all of the Jaegers they have their own symbols. So um, like, and the Pan Pacific um, 
like the, the military organization, they have their own symbol as well. There would be a lot of like iron-on patches and uh, you know like enamel pins and things like that. And so I have I have some of those for like Gypsy Danger and Striker Eureka and yeah. um, you know like the Jaegers that we see in the movie. Um, but they didn't really yeah like merch-wise, even though it could have been lucrative, actually it it was very tame. Well, here's the 18-inch Pacific Rim scale Gypsy Danger with light-up plasma cannon arm. 71 pounds. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, no, that's a lot. I don't want it that much. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, Gypsy Danger is the best design. I do like Striker Eureka as well. You don't get a good enough Mm. look at the other two for me to make kind of a determination. I mean, I have tried pausing it and stuff. And I suppose um, I could play the microtransaction-riddled PS3 game if I wanted oh to. yes oh it was so oh it's so clunky the yeah. game oh my god yeah like I played it briefly and I tried I really tried to get into it I wanted to um, but it it wasn't for me yeah but the problem is you get one fight and then it starts asking you to pay for it and it's like well see if you just charge me a £10 for the whole thing I would probably buy it to be honest and then think yeah. it was crap but I would still buy it so yeah yeah Oh, there's a Cherno Alpha figure, sixty-two pounds. I don't want that. Hmm. Not, not for that kind. I of like, way. I like the, I like the look of Cherno Alpha. I like that it's, you know, rust buckety, you yeah. know, just like massive, really old looking because it's the oldest Jaeger in the fleet, and it's still kicking about because it's Russian made, and you know it's well made. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, it's robust. Yeah, I think it's the best mm-hmm. word for it. Robust. That's an excellent <laughs> word. Yes. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It's robust. <laughs> the, the, the creature designs are amazing as well. I love the idea that Del Toro said you have to make it look like someone could wear a costume. You know, mm. they, they have to be that kind of. It has to be that kind of yeah. Japanese monster movie style where if it was yeah. made 40 years ago, people would be wearing costumes. Mm. But also, you know, it the creature design has that distinctive Del Toro feel. With the, you know, multiple little eyes in weird places. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the mouths and like the head shapes of all of them. You know, like they're so diverse and geometric. And it really evokes Pan's Labyrinth. It, it just really like kind of has a very, a very similar feel. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, and what else? What other designs is there? I think that's it. Yeah, there's so many creatures that you just get glimpses of as well. I mean, I think there was over a hundred designed for the film, uh, mm. and they were just the the production crew were just voting on their favourites every week, and then that was the one that would get made. But some of them you only see for a second, you know, the uh, just in the the flashbacks and, and whatever else. Um, so a lot of work went into just making it work, even if you know you're only catching something for a second or two. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of Jaeger designs that you only get a glimpse of as well. Exactly. I'm kind of interested to see where the sequel is going to take sort of the, the, the evolution of Jaegers in, like, during downtime. Because yeah. I don't know that they ever expected the rift to open again in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, how quickly do they come up with these new designs? Have they been developing them? Like, what's the what's the deal there? They just use them for other stuff, I suppose. Mm, they could. Maybe. Yeah. And 
as a kind of last thing, another thing I love about this film is the soundtrack. I think the the score is excellent. The the, the rock soundtrack. Oh yes. And... Oh, thank you for mentioning this. I I always rave about the Pacific Rim soundtrack. <laughs> uh, it's Ramin Djawadi, who also did Game of Thrones and Prison Break and Iron Man. Um, Mm-hmm. The first one, anyway. Yeah, the yeah, he is incredible. He does such great work with like themes um, and motifs and stuff that kind of uh, appear in different orchestrations, you know, in different ways. Uh, but also that great, great guitar theme—it's just so good. Well, that was a uh, Tom Morello that did that, mm-hmm. uh, and then it was kind of mixed in, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was just—it fits it so well, and. It's a good soundtrack, and I wonder what they'll do with it in the sequel. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm always, I'm always keen to see, like, musically, what they do with a, um, a score of a film can definitely inform, you know, make or break it, really. Yeah. Because um, a mediocre film with a really great score uh, can affect you a lot more as a viewer than if if the score is kind of forgettable. So, yes. It just makes those cool scenes even cooler. That's all. Mm-hmm. Well, not all, but you know, it's a lot of it. And well, yeah, you got to have a good like backdrop for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think I don't. Know, I think it'd be maybe be worthwhile coming back and talking about the sequel once we've both seen it. I think just so. To, yes, just to kind of <laughs> see what we think. Even yeah, if it's round off of... the discussion. <laughs> I'll try to read the the. Pacific Rim novels tell you tell you what what the what the deal is with <laughs> with that prequel book. <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah, I'm curious to see how it turns out. You know, it's one of those I don't have high hopes, but I think um, I think I'll be interested anyway. You know, I think when I'm sitting there in the cinema, I'll be like, right, I'm re- I'm ready to see what it has to to give me. Yeah, uh, it's a first time first time film director as well, uh, Stephen S. Denight, which is a weird choice i mean he's directed tv but yeah he's he's worked on a lot of um you know projects that are pretty much classics in in the in the genre um you know he's worked on buffy yeah he's he's i mean he's mates i guess with whedon because he's also worked on dollhouse Daredevil um, when it was good. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So yeah, when it was good. <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. Um, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what he will do. I don't knock first time directors, you know, for for doing it. It's it's a thing that Hollywood does now. They they will take a film director uh, who maybe has done a couple of little things here and there, like a good indie film give them a big blockbuster, set them off into the wild and see what they do with it. Yeah. Um, and some of them have turned out great results, Ryan Johnson being one. Yeah. Um, uh, Wes Ball, I think, has done a really good job with the Maze Runner movies. Uh, he came from like just having done shorts. Um, even even Trevorrow... Um, like he he did really well with Jurassic World, so I would disagree there. I hate that film. Oh really? I yeah. I thought it was fun, but then again, I'm I wasn't too attached to the original, so yeah. that that's a conversation for another time. Um, <laughs> well, there could yeah, be a Jurassic so, Park podcast coming. Ooh, up, so, you know. Yeah, <laughs> Neil before pod fans, stay tuned. <laughs> um, yes, so I I think that it's great to give, you know, first time directors like a big 
project that they can, you know, realize all their dreams because that's amazing. Um, it's what feel they, like they do should with be it. Ready for it though, because there's a different mm-hmm. there's a different skill set to making one of these things work. And you know, you've got, I mean, for every for every Ryan Coogler, you'll have a Josh Trank. You know, yeah, so, true. Uh, um, that's true. I mean, there's there's more to that film than than just him, but. You know, I wouldn't say it's the stuff that he did was especially good. You know, mm. so it doesn't it didn't seem like he knew what he was doing to begin with. So mm. it's not as if his version would have been better. But um, that fant four stick for those that don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I I defend the Fantastic Four film. Um, I I don't think it was the worst. But you know, again, a conversation for another time. <laughs> we're we're derailing here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Let's see what Denite will do. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if he's good or bad yet. I guess we'll see. He's good at TV. Yeah, this could make or break his career. Yeah. So if, I wonder if all the character stuff will be good. And then I suppose it's mm. second unit kicks in, you know, when it comes to the action stuff. It's almost like the, um, the, the recent Power Rangers movie. It's like two thirds of... Um, or three quarters of this, you know, I forget the director's name, Dean Israeli, that's it. It's mm-hmm. three quarters of that kind of teenage breakfast clubbish type film that he wanted, that he was making. Yeah. And then yeah. at the end, the special effects guys step in and finish it off for, a, you know, a Power Rangers episode. And that kind of mm-hmm. works, but I don't know. I don't know enough about the business as well to, to, to be saying this. You know, yeah, it's, it's we'll just, see. Yeah. We'll see. I, th- I think it's a, there's a big asterisk covering over over all of this like you know there's a lot that fills fills me with with um trepidation and concern it's like you know we've got a first time director uh the the original script writers have stepped away they've just like kind of washed their hands off this thing and they were the life and blood the life and soul of pacific rim you know, what would this movie have been if Travis Beecham hadn't written it, you know? So with him out of the picture and with Del Toro out of the picture, I don't know what we're looking at at all. Um, then again, it could be the aliens to Pacific Rim's alien. So who knows? Who knows? If it's much better than the original, I'll, t- I'll tip my hat. I'll say I was wrong. Uh, you know, I was wrong to be so worried. You know, Go like on there's, record. <laughs> yeah, there's there's hope for for blockbuster cinema yet. Um, <laughs> I suppose you know, like I'm I'm open to that, and I'd be happy. I'd be, I'd be happy to see it be like an actually genuinely good story, entertaining. Um, you know, a, a good continuation of what the first film was, you know, satisfying answers and all of that. Um, I would, yeah, I would definitely love to see to see a, a good Pacific Rim sequel. That being said, I'm not holding my breath. So... We'll, we'll soon see. Yeah. yeah. So, just to wrap up, do you have any kind of final declarative statements that you'd like to make before... Five out of five stars would recommend if you haven't seen Pacific Rim and this two-hour podcast hasn't convinced you that it's amazing. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you, friends. Um, Because I'm going to send this to some people who disagree with me on Pacific Rim. And, like, that's that's all folks, I have to say. Like, I think I've, 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 like, touched on everything. Um, This is, you know, it's one of those things. You know, it's one of those films that 
is is definitely divisive. You know, there's no middle ground. You can't you can't think Pacific Rim was okay. And perhaps that's that's good. You know, like it's 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 good that it's it's either great or it's not great. Um, you know what I mean? Like, or it's terrible um, for people. It it really explains a lot about people's um, film taste. Yeah. So, it's, it's, yeah. it's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would just recommend that people watch it. You know, it's mm. uh, some people use the justification of it. So, uh, with certain films, some people use the justification of you just leave your brain at the door and have a good time. And I don't think that's this film, although I've seen it described as that. I know. And I think it's. I mean, you could leave your brain at the door and just wait for the monsters to appear and start fighting the robots, but then mm. there'll be a good hour of the film where you're really bored. Yeah. Because there, there, there's an hour where not a lot of that happens. Yeah, you know, it's, they, it's it's surprisingly not as action-filled as people expect it to yeah. be. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, the trailers show you elements of all the action sequences, or at least most of them, but mm. then the film actually has this long chunk of time where they're cutting about in this shattered dome, talking to one another, and... It's that's quite confident, you know. There's confidence there where it's like, yeah, we believe in our characters, we believe in our story, and it's like, or it might just be we don't have enough money to show this much fighting, so who knows? But mm. uh, but I suppose the 1960s science fiction, you know, the original series Star Trek mentality is like we don't have the money for visual effects, we have to make <laughs> our characters interesting, you know. But that's but that's also something that I really enjoy in independent cinema. I love a good low-budget indie sci-fi movie, because that's really where the where the good filmmaking and where the good script writing comes in. Yeah. Good, low-budget indie sci-fi movies can really bring out the best of sci-fi and the best of you know, just pure character-driven storytelling. Um... What one of the one of the examples they always bring is Being Human, the BBC series. I've never seen that, but I'm oh. aware of it. Yeah. yeah, so there's there's a moment in I think season four where there's like a massive time jump and stuff happens, and instead of you know, obviously this is BBC, they didn't really have much money when they were making the show, yeah. um, and so they set like a conversation between a character who hasn't seen the events, a character who's lived through them, and sound effects of of what happened, you know, in, in the background. And I just thought that that was so clever and so emotional. I didn't need to see what they were describing because I could, I could see it in my mind's eye, and that's always better. Um, so, yeah, like, Pacific Rim doesn't do that as much because, obviously, you know, a lot of it is just... Um, you know, it's still it's still in a CGI kind of background, just like less, fewer battles than you would expect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so let's hope for the sequel doing more of the same or improving on the same. Or you know, I would take just being slightly not slightly less good. So, so. Yeah. Let's let's cross our fingers and our toes that yeah. it isn't terrible. <laughs> at this so. point, yeah, at this point, that's that would be good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if him. Um, I don't think it's been around long enough to be called a cult classic, but it enjoys some it has, form of cult status. It has, yeah, it has a cult following for sure. Um, 
Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know that it's a classic yet because it's. I mean, it's been five years, so I guess it's. It, you know, time has gone by, but I, I, I refrain from from classic status. Let's wait another fifteen years and revisit <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, I don't think I've got anything else to say. I think I've no? covered it in as much detail as I think so. <laughs> I could think of, or that anyone ever has. Uh, I don't know. I think the only person that's thought more about this are the people that made it. But <laughs> oh, hardly. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Now, now you make me feel like I've talked too much. <laughs> Not at all. Now the, the, I'm like, oh god, do I have the, the, too many feelings about this movie? <laughs> this, this is the mantra of this podcast. We talk too much. <laughs> we talk too much. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, we talk too much and can't be edited. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining for uh, a conversation I've been wanting to have for quite a while. You know, ever since it came out, I've wanted to record my thoughts in some way or another uh, and never really got the opportunity to. So, Well, thank you very much for giving me a platform to <laughs> air out all yeah. of my thoughts about Pacific Rim. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one, I would say it's one of my favorite um, sci-fi films of the last few years. Um, it's, it's really stuck with me. I want, I rewatch it a lot. Um, and there was a period that I was involved, like in the, in the fandom for the film, (laughs) there was a thing called JaegerCon, um, which was (laughs) an online, yeah, it was an online convention. So I think it lasted about a, a week, I think, um, on Tumblr. Yeah. And, you know, like, people made fan art. Um, I made uh, uh, funny memes about uh, the gypsy is analog line, uh, where... Oh, that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that, no, that no. Me every oh, the Jaegers are digital. No, gypsy is analog. And I just photoshopped, like, hipster glasses on Raleigh and Mako and had <laughs> them, like, hold an analog photo camera. It's still my most popular Tumblr post to date. 5,000 notes. Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) Well, you need to send me the link and I'll get it in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Yes, of course I will. Um, But yeah, like it's it's just, it's, it's been a part of my life somehow, Pacific Rim. Um, (laughs) It, it, and it renewed my faith in, in blockbuster films because at the time there were a lot of kind of vapid, blockbusters and then this comes along and it's in like IMAX 3D like spectacular and it was great and I really liked it and from that moment on I was like alright like even if something looks completely garbage maybe it isn't complete garbage maybe give yeah. it a chance you know so yeah absolutely yeah. give it a chance give it mm-hmm. a chance um, the, another great thing about the analog declaration is you know that all those uh all those digital holographic displays. <laughs> oh yeah, Gypsy is analog somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Except it isn't. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, I don't think whoever wrote that line understands what analog means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we don't we don't think about it too too deeply. Yeah, no, it's, no. it's 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 a hilarious line, and it makes for some excellent memes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Go to gypsyisanalog.tumblr.com, and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> The link is in the show notes, or in the future in the show notes. <laughs> All right, so thank you very much for joining. Uh, we will reconvene for the sequel. We'll set up some time for that, get that talked about once mm-hmm. we have the opportunity to see it. Yeah. I will see it on opening day, I would imagine. I don't like waiting. I'm not the kind of guy that waits. So, <laughs> uh, I'll see it on opening day. 
Not, well, I don't know. Maybe they will do a midnight screening. Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, maybe. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if I would do that, to be honest. To see the first one in IMAX again? I suppose. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what Cineworld do. I think they would have announced it by now, though. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, thanks again for joining. Thank you for having will, me. <laughs> I will catch you for the sequel. Yeah. See you soon. <laughs> Talk to you soon. That was our discussion on Pacific Rim. Thanks to YouTuber Little V Mills for the supplied music. If you like what you heard, then hit that subscribe button on iTunes, YouTube, or any major podcasting app. We hope you'll join us on the next Meal Before Pod. Mm-hmm.